the way we, we prescribe medicines in psychiatry, what we do is we, we paper over the cracks with these daily maintenance medicines. You know, we treat the symptoms as they arise. We don't get to the core, and the core being trauma. So we do the next best thing. We drug them with SSRIs and mood stabilizers and hypnotics and antipsychotics to treat the overlying symptoms without going to the cause. And so for me, what psychedelics offer is the best, newest, innovative piece of psychopharmacology in 75 years of psychiatry. You know, it really is the first opportunity that we've had to actually have a patient in a stable mental state where they can address those issues that underpin their disorders. Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Dr. Ben Sessa, a psychiatrist from the United Kingdom and currently a senior research fellow at Bristol, Cardiff, and Imperial College of London Universities, where he is conducting the UK's first clinical studies with MDMA-assisted therapy for the treatment of PTSD and alcohol dependence syndrome. Dr. Sessa and I spoke at length about the current state of psychedelic psychotherapy, exploring topics such as success rates for clients, how to work with trauma in a psychedelic state, whether depression is in fact treatable by this method, ego loss, shedding negative personal narratives, and much more. He is a voice of reason and is very much poised on the cutting edge of clinical research in regards to the sanctioned use of psychedelics for healing. Get ready to learn. This is Dr. Ben Sessa. I was hoping that you could start us off by giving us a bit of a, a potted history and telling uh, kind of what you do and how you came to this point. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I'm a medical doctor. And when I was at medical school, I'd, I'd already knew about psychedelics as a teenager. And I was interested in psychedelic culture and Tim Leary and Hoffman and Ginsberg and Burroughs and, you know, all of that stuff. So I knew all about that. And then I knew about Stan Groff and I knew about um, all of the work that was done in the 50s and 60s in psychiatry. And when I was at medical school and then studied psychiatry later, I would ask my tutors, you know, hey, you know, tell me about the work in the 50s and 60s with psychedelics. And none of them knew anything. They always said, no, what are you talking about? And I said, there's a whole history that happened. And it's this, it was as if the whole thing had been wiped from the medical curriculum, you know. Yes. And so I thought this, this isn't right because none of my tutors who should be teaching me know about this stuff. So I wrote a paper in 2004 which got published in the British Journal of Psychiatry, and it was the first paper on psychedelics since the 60s in a, in a mainstream medical press in the UK. What was the gist of it? It was, it was basically the history of psychedelics in medicine and also showcasing some of the stuff that was coming out of MAPS at that point. Mm. So I then went to a couple of conferences. I went to the Alberts Conference in 2006 for his 100th birthday and then the one in 2008, and it's, it was quite a small community then. You know, you only have to go to a couple of meetings and you've met everyone in the field. Um, and just found myself part of this wonderful community. You know, the message that I've always had since then is it, it's trying to bring this to the mainstream medical press because there's always been a lot of hippies who've been into the subject, but trying to get the grey-suited doctors to be interested has been, has been my real quest, really. Yeah. And it's great to see how much it's changed, actually, over that kind of almost 15 years now that I've been involved in it. Seeing it become more mainstream, seeing it become more acceptable... 
And, uh, you know, we're now on the verge of getting these drugs actually licensed as medicines, which is just superb. Yeah, so what is the situation in the UK for psychedelic psychotherapy? Well, at the moment, it's the same as everywhere else. At the moment, none of the none of the drugs are licensed anywhere. They're all illegal. Um, I know a lot of underground work goes on, but none of them are actually legally licensed yet. But we're working with other international teams uh, like MAPS and HEFTA to get these drugs licensed. So the way it is at the moment, there's um, I work at a university called Imperial College London, which has been a real centre for psychedelic research. Um, we did the first human uh, psilocybin study there in 2009, and then since then have done neuroimaging studies with psilocybin and LSD and DMT, and uh, and then I got involved with uh, the MAPS PTSD stuff. And at the moment, I'm running a study in Bristol in the UK using MDMA therapy to treat alcohol use disorder. And this is um, it's the world's first for using MDMA to treat addictions. So it's kind of a, a branching away from the PTSD angle that most of the M- MDMA work has been on. I see. So uh, in the course of this kind of therapy, do you see the, the same client over and over again? What, how many times and what is it like? Yes, yeah, so our study is much like most psychedelic therapy studies in as much as you only take the drug a couple of times interspersed with non-drug sessions. Yes. So we do an eight-week course of weekly psychotherapy sessions, two-to-one therapy, so as a male-female therapist pair. Um and they take the MDMA twice on weeks three and six with the other sessions are supportive. So, um, and that's a pretty typical picture for whatever psychedelic drug you're using. There's always uh, the preparation sessions, drug sessions, then the integration sessions. How long are the sessions with the MDMA? Well, when they take the compound, they're there all day. They take it at like half nine in the morning and they stay up all, all day on the experience and come down about, you know, five o'clock or so, and then they stay overnight. So all the other, de- all the other sessions, they just come in and out for an outpatient session. Yeah. But with the MDMA session, they stay overnight. I would love for you to explain why psychedelic psychotherapy is, is effective. Okay. For, for the doubting Thomases in the crowd who, who are saying, well, it's just a drug. Yeah, well, they're absolutely right to be cynical and concerned and they're right to be cautious and they're right to look for the evidence-based um, data, you know? This is, I'm, I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist. I, I don't do things because they feel right. I do things because we can demonstrate that it works and it's safe and it's efficacious. So I, I, I absolutely welcome people who are cautious about this. Good for them, you know? We, we want to get this approved as a proper licensed medicine. So, I mean, I think... The thing that drives me into why I think this is useful is is partly my experience of current state of pharmacology in psychiatry, which is poor. Mm. You know, we've had a hundred years of modern psychiatry and we are not winning the battle against trauma. You know, trauma underlies, underpins most, if not all, chronic mental health problems. Mm. You know, any of my patients, from schizophrenia to alcoholism to heroin addiction to PTSD to depression to mania, when you ask them what was your childhood like, they pretty much all say lousy. Sometimes big stuff, you know, social services, big kinds of child abuse, sometimes just little things, but it pretty much underlies all of it. And the way we we prescribe medicines in psychiatry what we do is we, we paper over the cracks with these daily maintenance medicines. You know, we treat the symptoms as they arise. We don't get to the core, and the core being trauma. Um, because for so many patients who've been severely traumatised, especially as children, 
when you sit them down in a psychotherapy session and you say, right, tell me about your trauma, they're out the door. You know, they just don't want to go there. By the time they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, they are so well defended against going there to those memories that happened to them when they were eight years old that they just cannot engage. So we do the next best thing. We drug them with SSRIs and mood stabilizers and hypnotics and antipsychotics to treat the overlying symptoms without going to the cause. And so for me, what psychedelics offer is the best newest innovative piece of psychopharmacology in 75 years of psychiatry you know it really is the first opportunity that we've had to actually have a patient in a stable mental state where they can address those issues that underpin their disorders so it really is a new way of doing psychotherapy what does the clinician do during this time when, let's say, the, the client has taken MDMA and they're, they're open to exploring the, the trauma that they're uncovering? How, how does the therapist tease it out with, with the understanding that this person is on, yeah. on MDMA? Um, well... This is where the non-drug sessions come in and it's so important, you know, and this is what's sometimes missed out with underground therapy, the preparation and the integration. So you'd spend the first few weeks getting to know the patient, getting the patient's history, starting to build up an agenda of the sort of stuff they might want to cover on the MDMA session. On the day of the MDMA session itself, it's very client-led. You know, it's not like cognitive behavioural therapy where it's like kind of turn to page six of the manual, we're going to do exercise 4B, you know. It's it's very much where does the patient want to go. But there may be a little bit of gentle teasing because you've learned this agenda in the previous week. So you may say, do you remember last week we were talking about your brother? This might be a good time to go there. And what's really amazing about MDMA, I, what, I mean, MDMA works in a very, very complex but yet subtle way on multiple receptor systems. Um... It really is the perfect drug for trauma-focused psychotherapy. I think if you were to sit down to invent a drug to assist trauma-focused psychotherapy, you'd come up with MDMA. And I think what it does more than anything, and this is the most important thing, is it selectively impairs the fear response. Selectively impairs the fear response, but it leaves the other faculties intact. That's really important because many drugs will impair the fear response. A bag of heroin impairs the fear response a bottle of vodka impairs the fear response but on those compounds you can't really remember what you're talking about you can't think you can't reflect what's amazing about mdma is just the fear bit is gone but all the other bits are there you can think you can reflect you can debate you can remember you can recall and crucially the next day you've it it, it's still all there and i always ask my patients in the morning you know yesterday were you just talking gobbledygook? Was this, you know, were you just high? Were you, don't know, no, you don't know what you were saying? And they always say, no, I know exactly what I was saying. Yeah. I was talking about my pain, and I've never been able to do that before. Mm. I've never been able to go there. I've spent, my, I've spent the last 40 years doing anything about think about that night. And yesterday, I sat and talked about it for six hours straight. Mm. So it's quite extraordinary the way it works in that way. So as a therapist, it's really your job just to be alongside them and... One of the things we often say is, let the medicine do the talking. The medicine will take you where you want to go. The medicine will protect you. I see. I, I think of it as a sort of life jacket or bulletproof vest almost that you can wear to go into battle with your trauma. And it, it seems to have that effect. 
Yeah, it's interesting uh, to me because I know that uh, the UK particularly, I mean, the United States as well, but the UK had such a reputation for people taking loads of ecstasy in the club settings, in recreational settings. And so to me, it's kind of fascinating that this same substance used within the clinical setting can do so much good. Yeah. And, you know, I think a big part of the work that we do is saying, you know, this is not ecstasy. This is not recreational ecstasy. It couldn't be further from recreational ecstasy if it tried, you know? (laughs) I mean, I've taken recreational ecstasy. I was a I was 18 in 1990 and a DJ in London for 10 years during the 90s. So I'm, I'm well aware of recreational ecstasy. But when I took clinical MDMA for the first time as part of my training, it's just completely different. It doesn't... It, it, there's, there's few similarities. Because of setting. Because of the setting, the intention. Well, obviously, the purity of the drug is... I mean, the, the compound we're using is 99.98% pure. It's like... It is just pure MDMA. But it's, it's also... It's about... If you think about ecstasy, ecstasy is a very externalizing experience. It's a party drug. You take it, you go to a loud club, lasers, banging music, dancing, having sex, shouting, drinking, taking other drugs. It's all about the external experience. Um, You know, imagine 5,000 people in a rave all lying in the dark with headphones on and eye shades still. All of that stimulatory energy that normally goes into the externalising behaviour is turned inside. And it's quite extraordinary to take MDMA and lie perfectly still in the dark. And when you do that, it takes you to places that you just wouldn't imagine is possible with a recreational drug ecstasy. So I'm curious now that I like how we're sort of defining what a, what a particular substance can do. I was wondering if you'd be open to speaking about some of the studies that, that use psilocybin. Yeah, so psilocybin is it's interesting that psilocybin's kind of risen to the fore in the last 15 years rather than LSD. I mean, it probably could have and should have been LSD because LSD is a very powerful compound. But, you know, politically, LSD still frightens people. Just those three little letters and people run for the hills. Whereas most kind of regulatory authorities don't really know what psilocybin is. So psilocybin has ended up becoming the sort of most studied drug um, for the neuroscience studies, but also the clinical studies. Um, Now, classic psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin are different from MDMA. They have more of a perceptual distortion effect, more of a ego loss effect, um, which is very, very helpful clinically because the way I the way I think of it is, you know, most people a lot of people would fear classic psychedelics because they'd say, you know, what if my what if I'm not the same afterwards? Yeah. You know, well I mean one one way of answering that question is, well, I'm not gonna be the same after this podcast, you know? I could watch a football match and we're not going to be the same. Our brains are constantly in flux. We're never the same. Everything changes. So not being the same isn't something to fear. But when you look at it clinically, and I look at my patients who their identity, the label they hang around their neck, I am useless. I am a failure. I am unloved. I am unlovable. I can't trust people. A, a compound that allows those kinds of labels and personal narratives to be stripped away and then rebranded and rebuilt. It's very powerful. So in in that respect, the concept of ego loss and shedding those negative narratives, because these are these are labels we hang around our neck very early in life through our trauma. You know, if you're if you're lucky enough to have a good attachment relationship where you've been praised and played with and told you're lovely and your homework is nice and you like your teacher and your parents are kind and they tell you that honesty is a good thing and trust is a good thing. That's great. You hang those labels around your neck and you go into life with those. Yeah. If the labels you hang around your neck are lousy, you they stick. 
And one of the big problems about mental health problems, it's their chronicity, it's the rigidity with which people hold these narratives. And it's very hard to shake them. Um, so I can tell my patients, you know, you're a good, worthy person, the world is fine, you can trust people, but they're not going to believe me. Any more than if someone came to me and said, Ben, you're a horrible, awful person and no one's to be trusted. I wouldn't believe them. I'd need, you know, I'd, I'd, I would yeah. take convincing. Yeah. So why should my patients believe me when I tell them otherwise? So tools that allow us to transiently chip away at those narratives and say, look, there is another way of looking at this. Yeah. Immensely powerful. So what happens in a, a psilocybin study, clinical study, it, is it deemed successful if people, if their ego dissolves? Yeah, well, so the clinical studies that have been done, I mean, the one that's underway at the moment at Imperial is a treatment-resistant depression study with psilocybin. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, psilocybin, like LSD, um, has been used in a lot of addiction studies with alcohol and nicotine dependence have both been studied with psilocybin with really good results, really like tremendous results. Um, much, much better than the current treatments in terms of reducing these addictions. You know, I think this is one of the things about psychedelic research that we've got to be, we've got to be careful of. We mustn't allow ourselves to get too carried away because one of the things that killed it in the 60s was this sort of let's all take LSD and live in, you know, chemical utopia with one another. We can, the whole world will be saved. You know, psychedelics are not going to save the world. You know, they're, they're going to be part of the clinical tools that we use with our patients. Just better, hopefully. Yeah. And, you know, and like I said, going back to the thing about maintenance medications, you know, maybe, maybe critics would look at psychedelics in, in, in psychiatry and say, oh God, there's those psychiatrists with more drugs. The reason I like psychedelics and the reason everybody I know in psychedelic therapy, we are all psychotherapists at heart more than pharmacologists. I mean, I'm an MD and a pharmacologist, but the reason I like these drugs is because I do not like psychiatric pharmacology. I want to get my patients off daily SSRIs. Yeah. And these drugs, you know, the cure word, we don't use the word cure in psychiatry. We've become learned helpless. We've, we've become used to psychiatry being a palliative care profession. You know, I'm really sorry, but you've been severely traumatised, you know, and you're now in your 30s, you're probably going to still be seeing me in your 60s. That is not good enough after 100 years of modern psychiatry. That's lousy. No other branch of medicine would allow those kinds of low outcomes. You know, we, we need to start believing we can permanently cure our patients. And the way to do that is to tackle these rigid narratives that are held from a very early age. And psychedelics are the best tool that we've seen so far that can do that. What do you think about microdosing? You, you described a psilocybin study. Does that involve microdosing? So I know microdosing is very much the flavor of the month at the moment, and it's driven by thousands, maybe tens of thousands of anecdotal experiences. I think one thing to say about microdosing is we're yet to have the randomized control data. So we can't get too carried away with it. You know, 10,000 anecdotal reports do add up to something pretty exciting, but they're still anecdotal. Yeah. Until we've done randomized control studies with placebos, we're not quite sure whether it's working. So that's the first thing I'd say about microdosing. Second thing, for me, for me, what I like about psychedelics is you don't have to keep taking them loads and loads and loads. For me, if you're going to take a psychedelic every single day, you may as well be on an SSRI. Now, I know that's a controversial thing to say, and, and I'm sure Jim Fadiman would disagree with me there. And, and he would be right to, because, you know, a, a little pinch of mushroom is still better for you than most psychiatric drugs. But what I like about psychedelics is 
rather than microdosing, have a proper full threshold dose combined with psychotherapy and then not need any drugs at all, uh-huh. you know? So well, I think... How does that work for something, though, with, like... I think about depression as, as something that kind of hits you and, you you know, you sometimes you get better and then it hits you again. Yeah. You know, like... It, it can, what, what I think of as chemical depression, be assisted by psychotherapy, whether it's psychedelic or not? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And, you know, some mental disorders are not necessarily driven by an index trauma that, that we could explore in psychotherapy. Some have this much more organic or chemical feel to them. And I can, I guess I can understand the rationale behind being on long-term medication for those things as well as the other stuff, you know? I mean, I think as a good psychiatrist, I think it's different here in the States. Everybody I speak to here is quite disparaging about psychiatrists because they just see psychiatrists as giving out drugs. I mean, my whole training in psychiatry is, is about being a very good holistic doctor. You know, I'm, I'm interested in what my patients eat and whether they exercise and who their friends are and their family and their kids and whether they're working and, you know, all their relationships. And I think psychiatry is a field that should not be thought of as just this medicine-driven practice. It's it's a very holistic biopsychosocial framework in which to understand the patient in their totality, you have to attack them from all angles with all of those things. Just giving them a drug ain't going to work if they live in a lousy house with no job and no career and no prospects and no family and no self-esteem. So you have to attack it from all angles. And one of the things that's nice about psychedelics, it does engender this sense of holistic thinking that you're part of a bigger thing and there's no single cure. Can I ask you about the DMT studies that you were speaking about? Yeah, so what we've been doing in Imperial over the last uh, 10 years or so is neuroimaging, firstly with psilocybin and then with LSD and now with DMT. So basically, um, uh, Robin Carhart-Harris, who's uh, leading the team there, he's been running these studies. And it's essentially pretty much the same paradigm, but he's working his way through all the classic psychedelics. So that's why we're on to DMT now. Um, You know, it's been a great... Um, privilege for me to be involved in those studies, either as the study doctor administering the drug or as a healthy volunteer receiving the drug. So over the years at Imperial, I've received intravenous LSD, DMT and LSD as part of those studies. And what they're doing is um, using a combination of uh, functional um, MRI and EEG um, together which is really groundbreaking because we're actually imaging people in the scanner whilst they're having a EEG, a MEG scan as well. So um, you get to see the actual functional changes within the brain when they're undergoing certain tasks. And this is teaching us a lot about the nature of the drugs and how they work, but also about the nature of normal consciousness and how the brain operates, how perceptions work, how sense of self is... Um, experienced. Where is the self? And what's interesting about Robin is he's he's quite unique. He's dual trained both as a in psychoanalysis and in psychopharmacology, which is an unusual combination. So I always tease Robin that what he's really doing is he's uh, he's basically physically demonstrating the state of Freudian consciousness using psychedelics as a tool. So it's pretty exciting stuff. That's very cool. I was listening to an interview you gave on the MAPS podcast, and it was a great interview. I I advise uh, everyone to go listen to that as well. And one thing that struck me was uh, your description of the people who you wanted to give the, uh, in the sense of democratization, 
so it's it's not just people who are privileged enough to be able to pay seven hundred dollars for you know an, yeah. an underground treatment. Can you speak a little bit about the the class? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really important to me this because I do have friends who are underground therapists, and they'll say, you know, hey man, you don't have to work with the man, you don't have to work with farmer, you don't have to put on a white coat and do all this. You can just come to my place and I'll give you MDMA and you can sit in my yurt and, you know. But, you know, my patients, for me, what this is all about is increasing accessibility to wide numbers of people. You know, we're talking about tens or if not hundreds of thousands of untreated cases of PTSD in the UK alone. And these people do not want to break the law. They can't all go off to the Peruvian jungle and take ayahuasca. They can't all come to Esalen, you know. These, my patients are... um Everyday people, you know, they are they are hard, shaven-headed, tattooed, drink pints, smoke cigarettes. They are, you know, they would run a mile if they saw chakras or Indian sitar music, you know. So I, I, the part of the work that I do is very much about, and it sometimes makes me unpopular within the psychedelic community, but trying to increase accessibility, which also means breaking down stereotypes, you know. Why do we have to have Indian batiks on the walls? Why do we have to have sitar music playing? Why not a picture of Manchester United on the wall, you know? like. Well, how are your uh, your clients? Are they receptive to the MDMA? Are they resistant at first? They're not, they're, they're not resistant because they are desperate, you know. They've, they, these are people who've spent 20, 30 years in the psychiatric profession. They've been sectioned in hospital, they've been detained, they've been on all, every drug, they've tried to take their lives, they've been on and off addictions to alcohol or heroin or other drugs like this. You know, they are desperate. So it's the sense that if this innovative treatment is going to work, then bring it on. And what we found so far with the MDMA study is truly transformative experiences you know truly transformative and you know the data's we're still gathering the data it's early on in the study but what what we're finding is quite surprising and i wasn't expecting it we thought that so like i said no one's ever done mdma for an addiction before but um they've done all this work at maps with ptsd so the rationale behind the study was um mdma works for trauma so there's a lot of trauma in alcoholism, so we'll do MDMA for alcoholism and we'll use it to tackle the trauma. But what we've actually found in the sessions we've done so far is it's almost behaving much more like a classical psychedelic, you know? It's not just, it's not just impacting on index trauma events. People are talking about truly transformative peak experiences um, in which they are just having this opening up. But what I like about MDMA... And I'm I'm biased because we're doing an MDMA study. But what I like about it over the classic psychedelics is the 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 transformative pink experience on MDMA. It's it's got this heartwarming aspect to it. You know, it's not only does the heart open and the head opens like on psilocybin, but when it opens, it opens with love and positivity. And you know, and I find myself saying to the patients, "You are amazing. You are lovely. You are gorgeous." You're such a good person. And and they just like, and they're saying, I know I am. And these people who've hated themselves and hated the world all of their lives, and they say, I now know I'm a good person. And I now know that these labels I've carried around were not my fault, you know? And I've hung these labels around my neck all my life, and I just don't need to anymore. And I don't need to drink because I was just masking the, the pain. And now I don't need to because I'm free. It's quite remarkable. So how many years are we away from it being an option for man on the street, woman on the street to say, this is something I want to explore? 
Well, you know, maps have a very clear timetable would for... You, would you mind explaining what map? We've said maps oh, a bunch sorry. of times, and I realize I don't know that we'd explain what it is. Yeah, I'm sorry, Sam. Yeah, so the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, is a uh, organization based uh, in Santa Cruz, actually, uh, down the road. And um, Rick Doblin formed this organization in 1985-86 um, at the point at which MDMA was banned. So MDMA was being used in the 70s and 80s by psychotherapists, then it was banned, and then the whole rave scene happened after that. But when it was banned, Rick set up maps to say to try and get this drug um, back into medicine again. And it's been a 30-year struggle. But we're very close now, so the timetable is close. And we're looking at a licence for MDMA to treat specifically PTSD in 2021. Yeah. So what, what MAPS are doing at the moment is large, multinational, multi-site um, phase three studies, which means uh, you, you use a set protocol and you have to get multiple teams. Because at the moment... The, the results have been really good, and uh, a couple called Michael and Annie Mithoffer who've been doing it, spearheading this, they've had tremendous good results, but we need to see lots of independent teams doing it. So we're working with MAPS. We're going to do two studies in the UK as part of that, um, and there's a whole bunch of uh, different places around Europe that are all doing this, and the timetable is set for 2021, and I don't think psilocybin's going to be far behind either. So, I mean, the thing about drug development is... It's very expensive and it takes a long time. And what's interesting about the psychedelics is, although we've known about these drugs for thousands of years, things like cannabis and magic mushrooms, and we've had LSD for 75 years and MDMA for 25, 30 years, you know, more than that, you, from a regulatory perspective, they are new drugs. So it's really frustrating that you've got to jump through all these hoops. Uh, right. And the thing about pharmacology research... 99% of all pharmacology research is funded by the pharma industry because they've invented this new chemical and whatever it is, and, they're, and they'll happily throw 20 million at this, 20 million at that chemical, 20 million at that, because if one of them sticks and turns out to be the next Viagra or the next Prozac, they'll make trillions. So that's how it works in the pharma industry. They throw, they throw tens of millions of dollars at these unknown chemicals, hoping they're going to come up trumps with something. Now... MDMA is not funded by the pharma industry. So Rick Doblin's done a tremendous piece of work, beg, borrowing and stealing, to gather this money through donors and philanthropists and crowdfunding and all these creative measures. But there's no getting away from it. It's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm. And that's quite unprecedented to bring a drug to market outside of the pharma industry in this way. It would seem that they would be especially um, incentivized to support it if it was something that one took every day. Absolutely. And maybe that's why it's not got the support. Because, you know, when you're the pharma industry and you've thrown 100 million, 200, 500 million dollars at your chemical, you want them to take it every day. So then you reap back your R&D costs. And so the idea, and this is what I like about the drugs, you know, you take them twice and then you don't have to take any drugs at all. You don't have to take the MDMA again. You don't have to take SSRIs because you're better. That's, you know... We have to be careful of conspiracy theories because the psychedelic community is rife with conspiracy theories and I can't bear them. But you do wonder what goes on in the boardrooms of these big pharma companies when they sit there thinking, what drug can we come up with next that will just about get someone slightly better but not totally cure them because we don't want them cured. Yeah. Now, I'm sure those conversations don't go on because that would be too vile to imagine such things but it sort of looks like that doesn't it and and the, and the bottom line is here we are in psychiatry with this huge raft of compounds 
none of which cure the patient. They just paper over the cracks. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with papering over the cracks to some extent. The analogy I often give in my talks is, you know, if you imagine you've got a, you've got a fever, you've got an infection and you have a high temperature, you can take um, ibuprofen or aspirin or what we call paracetamol. What do you call it here? Uh, Okay, so these are drugs that, that, you know, that lower your temperature when you've got a, when you've got a fever. Okay. Now, that's a good thing to do because you lower the temperature and you feel a bit better. But those drugs are not antibiotics. They're not actually going to kill the bug that, that's causing the infection. Now, when we give SSRIs and mood stabilizers and hypnotics for what is essentially a trauma-driven disorder, it's like giving an aspirin to take the temperature down, but it's not killing the bug, the infection. And I see trauma as an infection, as a bug. And just giving a drug to lower your temperature ain't good enough. We've got to give an antibiotic. And I see that the psychedelics are the closest thing we've had to the antibiotics. So this is a paradigm shift in psych psychiatric pharmacology. Um, and one that's a very, very exciting field to be in. Uh, in your interview, you, you made a nice kind of... Um gesture towards young physicians and young psychiatrists and you invited them to kind of stand on the ground that you're standing on. I'd like to hear you just speak about that for a moment. You know, this is a, a tricky subject and in many cases considered controversial, you know, and, you know, I'll, um, I'll go to speak somewhere and I'll be introduced as his Ben Sessa controversial speaker on this topic. And I'll say, I'm not controversial. I'm a boring, sober, tie-wearing, evidence-based, medicine-driven doctor. And I'm, I'm not going to back something that's controversial. I'm not backing this because I'm some crazy hippie that just wants to see people get high. I think we can all go and get high if we want. I'm backing this because this is good, robust, solid, evidence-based medicine. And it's what my patients deserve. So... I try and tell the young people involved in this, that's the first thing you should say to your tutors. This is not some weird fringe thing done by just a bunch of crazy people on the west coast of California, you know. This is evidence-based practice medicine, and it's cutting-edge neuropsychopharmacology. Um, and we've got to get away from that old image of it, you know. And now, when I started this 15 years ago, when I was in Oxford after my training, and I remember my tutor said, you know, Ben, why are you doing this? You're crazy. This is, this is career suicide. And, you know, far from it being career suicide, it's been a hugely career-enhancing experience for me. Um, so if, if you're a young person and you're on the fringes of this and you're interested in it and your tutor says that to them, then all you have to say to them is, open your journals and read about this, you know, because this is not just a fringe thing. Not a month goes past that major peer-reviewed medical journals run articles on psychedelics. It's very much out of out of the fringes now and in the mainstream. I mean, look at the universities. We've got Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Harvard, UCL, UCLA, Johns Hopkins, um, you name it. Um, all the major neuroscientific institutions are running research programs with psychedelics now. Wow. It's not a fringe subject. This is where modern cutting-edge pharmacology is. So people should not be scared of that. This is a, a bona fide subject to, to follow as a young person in the field. I wonder if you could talk to me about what you would like the next 10 years of your career and the next 10 years of psychedelic research to be about. Well, I mean, get home with the data. That's the first thing. We've got to get the studies done. We've got to get the data in and we've got to get proper 
um, proper protocols for delivering these substances to the many, many needy, worthy people who, who need and deserve them. Um, I think that there is going to have to be an inevitable move away from some of the nuttier fringe parts of the psychedelic community. And again, I make myself unpopular there. Yeah. But I just have to, because, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to sell this thing to a bunch of people who have been lied to since 1971 and the Misuse of Drugs Act about the erroneous dangerousness of these substances. You know, I, I'm shocked when I speak to intelligent, erudite people, like doctors, who they hear the words LSD and they immediately say, danger. Like, well, show me the data, you know. These are remarkably safe substances. Not 100% safe. Nothing is 100% safe. But staggeringly safe when you look at the actual data. Staggeringly safe. I mean, look at MDMA. 750,000 doses every weekend are consumed in the UK. Mm -hmm. 750,000 doses every weekend for the last quarter of a century have been consumed in the UK. We have maybe five deaths a year. Mm -hmm. Now... That's a regrettable five deaths, but all of those five deaths could be easily avoided with the right education. Yet, yet intelligent people are, have, have, have fallen for quite simply what is a lie about the misuse of drugs. Um, so that if you're asking me what do I see the future, I think the first thing we need to do is to tackle this awful piece of pseudo-scientific legislation that is drug prohibition, because it's demonising the wrong substances and it's criminalising the wrong people, and it is deeply and unethically withholding safe and efficacious medicines from people. So we have to tackle that. Now, the other thing we have to do is we do have to safeguard the way in which you, we use these compounds medically, and again, that might make me kind of unpopular, but I think the whole thing would fall flat on its face if suddenly MDMA is available in, in every clinic from people who don't know what they're doing. You know, I think um, that we have to safeguard the way in which it's delivered because, as we've said, it's all about set and setting and just taking the drug alone will either not work or be harmful. Mm. You know, the important thing about the psychedelic experience is that it's integrated. To just take the drug and then not leave it integrated is, is, is potentially harmful. So we have to safeguard the way in which it's delivered and this means a very rigorous training programme and very rigorous supervision and support mm. Um, and again, underground therapists would be critical of me there, saying, you know, yeah, we can, we know what do we're it doing. Do by intuition. Yeah, do it by intuition, and that, that's fine. And 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 there's a there's there's an awful lot of knowledge and wisdom within the, in the underground community. I'm not denying that. But if we're going to make this work, and it's not going to fall on its face as it did in the '60s, mm. we're going to have to follow the rigors of evidence-based practice and regulation, or it just ain't going to work. And I don't think we can take another 47 years of prohibition. Yeah. I don't think it's. I don't think that's fair or moral or ethical for those patients that deserve it. And what about you personally? With how would you? I don't know. Do you have a practice ideally in 10 years where you see people doing this? Yeah, I mean, I've. Uh, yeah, I mean, I hate research. I'm not an academic, you know. Universities are so annoying. I mean, I thought the NHS and clinical work was bureaucratic. Universities, nightmare. I, I, I don't want to do research the rest of my life. I want to be a clinician. So the moment these drugs get their license, I'm going to be setting up a psychedelic clinic in the Bristol and we're going to be delivering MDMA therapy yeah. um, to a broad range of diagnoses above and beyond PTSD. Well, um, addictions of all kinds. Yeah. Um, Anxiety-based disorders, end-of-life disorders. Who knows? I mean, I was talking 
talking to someone the other day about eat possible eating disorders and how, you know, like I said, that the hallmark of all of these things is rigidity of thinking, stuckness, you know, I can't get better because I just don't, I'm not able. So these compounds that allow flexibility of thinking, you know, I think they could be applied widely. So yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to set up a clinic and, you know, also I want to move away from the medical model aspect of it. I mean, I don't want to move so far away from the medical model that I start believing in unicorns. But, you know, I want to... I, I see psychedelic treatment centres as these holistic centres of personal growth and development where you, you know, you it's all about lifestyle change. You know, like Alan Watts said, once you've got the message, you can hang up the phone. It's Psychedelics are a springboard for personal lifestyle change. They You can't keep taking them the whole time. You don't need to. But you can have the enlightening experience and then change your whole outlook in a positive way. So that's what I see, this kind of beautiful, holistic growth center and also not just for the clinical population it doesn't have to just be for ill people it could be a place where people come with families where you have the growth experiences and community cohesion and that's going back to the kind of shamanic way of looking at things the way that the 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 shaman or the priest within the community was this kind of central hub of um growth for the whole community so i know it all sounds a bit crazy i think i've been at esalan too long i haven't been here a day yet <laughs> It's rubbing off on me, man. <laughs> Dr. Ben Sessa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Fame. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to rate us and write a review. You can also find all of our episodes at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well.